0: Well, good morning and welcome, everybody. We are beginning a brand new series here today called How to Be Happy. And that's a question that just has a monumental amount of history behind it. People have been asking this question for an extraordinarily long time. In fact, the ancient philosopher Aristotle asked the question, or actually posed the answer to the question, that happiness is both the meaning and purpose of life. Thomas Jefferson, a founding father of these United States, wrote in the Declaration of Independence, the three ideals of this new nation is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is a track that we've all been on for an extraordinarily long time. But if there's something that we know that, in fact, you know already about happiness, is that it's easy to get, at least for a moment, but it's extraordinarily difficult to keep. And that's what we're talking about this morning is that happiness below the surface level of happiness, below the joy that we, that's just beneath that like surface level. But it's like it's all around us all the time. In fact, we can't get, go anywhere without seeing like advertisements that subtly show us, that subtly depict a picture about how to be happy. In fact, I brought a picture of a couple of them with me today. This is a woman having, having dental work done Right? And if yeah, and if you don't look like this having your teeth cleaned, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> Right? like nobody looks like that but it's like hey no no we're happy because like the dental work is getting done it's like you've got to be kidding me we're not supposed to be smiling and happy away at this one i like this next one it kind of subtly shows the picture of a woman right and just the way that the the man like the guy is blurred out in the background but the ring is in focus like just says all kinds of things about culture right that's an indictment just right there we can't see his face but if you could like look around from the other side he he is in a full-out panic because he now has to figure out how to pay for that happiness on her finger. And then this last one, this couple just totally cheesing away in front of the Las Vegas sign, right? Because they're happy. They got to go on a trip together. They got to go somewhere fun. And the best thing about this trip is that whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, unless it's itchy. Then you bring it home with you. But like this is the how to be happy. Maybe it's a shiny object that you put on your finger. Maybe it's a trip that you take. This is what I'm talking about. You know what it takes to be happy, at least for a moment. But then when the shiny thing fades or needs to be paid for, when the trip is done and it's only a memory, suddenly you're not so happy anymore. Suddenly you start to hit that realization that happiness it's easy to get, but extraordinarily difficult to keep and to hold on to. And so throughout this series, How to Be Happy, we're taking a look at the happiness beneath the happiness. We're taking a look at a book in the Bible where it's referenced often in fact, in this, uh, this little letter, this little book, it's only four chapters long. Joy, rejoice, happiness is referenced something like 16 times in these four short chapters of the book. Philippians. So what we're gonna do over the next four weeks, the four weeks of October, these next four weeks in four installments, we're gonna take a look at the four chapters of the book of Philippians. Chap- Philippians chapters one, two, three, and 4. So we're kicking it off this morning with Philippians chapter 1 and how to be happy. But we're actually looking at the alternative because if we want to know how to be happy, this morning we're taking a look at its alternative. This morning we're taking a look at how to be miserable And to walk it back from there. So you can find Philippians chapter 1. The table of contents is going to be your friend on this one. It's a little book in the back of the Bible in the New Testament. You can figure it along. we got Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. If you like those, take them home. We give them away all the time. We absolutely love that. Also, the word is going to be on the screen. And we are a phone friendly church. Okay, we're starting it off in Philippians chapter one. And while you're finding it, I just want to, I want to highlight a couple of important details that will come up a little bit later on with what Paul says. Is that the city of Philippi was named after King Philip the second. Many of us don't know who he is. You might know his son, Alexander the Great. It was, uh, the city was named in honor of his dad. And it was built as this military outpost because there was a gold, like a literal gold mine next door that was under the sovereignty of a rival nation. And so they started this military outpost to just sort of do a slow burn, low-key hostile takeover that lasted years of this gold mine. And it worked. In fact, it became, because of then the mining, it became more than just a military town or outpost. It became like this military city. So you think of Philippi like you would think of like Colorado Springs for the Air Force or Pensacola, Florida or Norfolk, Virginia. It's one of these these towns that like everybody has some connection whether you're active duty military or maybe you're retired military or supplier. Like everybody has a connection. It makes them fiercely loyal to the nation of Rome in Paul's day. And that's gonna be important, especially as we get on, and on to some of the citizenship questions in part four. But, but a little bit later, later, we'll get to that. What we also have to know about the, city, about the city of Philippi is that Paul's been there before. He's writing this letter, in fact, 10 years after the fact. And he's writing them about a lot of things and we're gonna hear happiness and especially misery come out clear so starting off in Philippians 1, chapter, um, chapter 1, verse 12, we see, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, key phrase, we'll come back, has actually served to advance the gospel. And as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. What I want to know, what does he mean when he says those things that have happened to me? I don't think that Paul is referencing like the positive things that have happened to him. I don't think Paul is like, you know, like that time that I got the award and there was a ceremony for like exemplary uh, service to Christ over this many years. I don't think he's like, when those things happened to me, he's talking about the good stuff. It's hugely important for us to realize he's talking about the bad stuff that happened to him, that he had no control over, that he didn't want to happen to him, but they did anyway. He's talking about those times like like, like when he got driven out of the city for preaching that Jesus had died and then came back to life. He's talking about, about that time he got shipwrecked. He's talking about the time that they hurt him, that they whipped him. He's talking about his time that he was put in prison because of his allegiance to Christ. He's talking, church, about the time that he was in Philippi last 10 years ago. And he had the audacity to heal a little girl who was sick. And because the city leader, some of them thrived and made money off a little girl's sickness, and he interrupted that with this miraculous healing, they had the audacity to put him in jail, to put him in prison. And it's not just any kind of prison, because remember, this is a former military outpost. They put him in the military jail in what was called the inner sanctum, the deep, dark basement of the prison. They put his feet in stocks so that even if the door were to open, he couldn't walk out, much less run. They put him down in this deep, dark dungeon And locked him away where he didn't think he would ever, he didn't know if he would ever get out again. They put him down in this deep dark dungeon in the bottom of the basement of the prison, which is important to also know, to paint a picture of the whole thing when people upstairs did their thing. And they ate and they drank without proper sanitation, especially in the prison. And then when they went through them, gravity was not on his side in the basement, that was his life. That's what he remembers as being in the city of Philippi. And even now, he's writing, and he's in prison again. He's in jail, in Rome this time, probably. And he's writing to the people, and he's going, even now, I'm in jail again. I've been called into this extraordinary ministry by Jesus Christ himself, and still, I'm in jail But those things that have happened to me. Listen, you want to be miserable? Step number one is tie your happiness to the circumstances around you. Those things that happen to you. He goes, this is so easy. It's so simple. I can look at so many different things. I was was shipwrecked. I was run out of town. I was in prison several times. And now I'm writing still from prison. You want to be miserable. Tied to the circumstances around you. But, but happiness, but joy is found somewhere else. He's talking about about joy in the story. He's going, "No, no, no, I am a prisoner for Christ. You see, Paul had this thing. He really, really wanted, and he believed it was his mission, to bring the message, the gospel message of Jesus Christ, dead and resurrected, to the emperor himself, Nero. Like, that emperor, Nero, the historical guy, real guy. Paul wanted a face-to-face with Nero so that he could share the gospel message with him. But he knew that there was no way he was ever going to get just a meeting with the emperor of Rome. That sort of thing didn't happen. He didn't have enough money to bribe his way in to get that meeting. So he settles for the next best thing. He goes, now I'm now in Rome. And they arrested me and put me in jail. In fact, they chained me to one of the royal guardsmen. Like like the emperor's own army, like his personal guard, takes turns, three, eight hours of shifts, round the clock, being chained up next to me. And so I can't get away. This is my chance. Paul's looking at it and and they chain him next to him right and and they think Paul's chained up to him but Paul knows they're chained up to him because this palace guard comes and they lock arms together and like let's start this eight-hour shift and Paul looks over and he goes you want to hear about Jesus? and he doesn't have a choice. Eight hours long, Paul just shares his testimony with And then it's like, finally, I'm done. Unlocked. Next guy comes in, locks himself up. And what does Paul, you want to know about Jesus? And they just take turns around the clock. And Paul shares the message of the hope that he has in Jesus Christ, no matter what. And we start to find out it made a difference. It started with a palace guard. Many of them believed, it says, and they would go back to their homes and they'd go back to their neighborhoods and they would bring that message with them. And then all of a sudden, other people in the palace start to believe. It starts with like the cooks and the cleaning staff and the soldiers, and it kind of starts to work its way up. And Paul's like, no, no, It's not so much that I'm chained to the guard. The guard is chained to me. If you want to be miserable, you tie your happiness and your joy to circumstances. If you want that joy, that happiness underneath the happiness, you change your perspective. Shift your focus like Paul did. So I've got a, um, a friend and a, and a mentor who's much older and wiser than me, and he's, uh, he's been through some life. And he's a banker. And um, I hear about his job. He's a commercial loan lender, which means that he um, takes all the information of a small business idea or any kind of business idea and he puts it all the numbers in the spreadsheet and the formulas and the computer at the desk and then he decides whether or not he's gonna give somebody the loan or not. And listen, it sounds like the most boring job in the world. And I'm just gonna, I'm sorry, some of you are bankers, maybe you're future bankers or something like that. Like, it just sounds dreadful to me. And I'm looking at it going like, so like seriously all day you're chained to your desk. He goes it's not so bad. It, no I, I found joy in the work and I look at it as just like number crunching formula spreadsheets that's it. He must be pretty good at it because he got to become vice president of the bank doing this sort of thing but he goes no this is the joy that he brings out of it. He goes no Dirk I make dreams come true. Like as a Jesus follower himself, he goes, people come to me with a restaurant idea or some other kind of business that I believe God has put this vision for our city that God has put on their heart. And I'm the one, I'm the guy that gets to help them make that dream happen. And I'm like, that is a shift in focus that I did not anticipate. But then I'm like, okay, but listen, what about the people you've got to say no to? right? Like they pour out their dream. They pour out all their hopes and the vision for this city or this neighborhood or whatever they want to do. And you have to, you have to turn to them and just say, no. And he goes, oh man, that's, that's great too. Because I've also seen what this thing can look like when it goes bad. And so not only do I get to make dreams come true when I say yes, but I prevent, I prevent nightmares from becoming reality by saying no or sometimes just not yet. And so whatever the answer is, I'm either helping somebody's dream come true or I'm preventing a nightmare from overtaking their lives. No, no, this job, I'm not chained to my desk and my computer and my spreadsheets and formulas. My spreadsheets and formula and desk and computer are chained to me. They are my tools that I use to make dreams come true and nightmares to stay away. And I'm going, this shift, not in circumstances, but in perspective, is incredible. And so I'm testing this out. And there's two, there's two people that you never want to have to call in an emergency. And that's a plumber and electrician. I am just offending everybody. There's nobody that's going to come to this church anymore. But listen, you get it though. Because it also means that you're either out of water or powers out, right? Something's wrong. Something's broken in these fixed. You don't want to call those people. But when you do, you can be miserable about it. And by tying yourself to the circumstances of needing to call one of those two people, it's a fast track to misery. But if you could change your focus okay, so this building is a rat's nest of electrical work on electrical work over like 10 different owners in 40 years. And it's just the weirdest setup. And so when we took it over, we're like, hey, listen, we got to have like one electrician who's just going to master this thing. So know where everything is all the time and start to like get everything on the same page and like figure it all out. So it's like, just call one electrician, not like a company, send a technician out or electrician, no, no send like one guy, like, like one person who knows this whole thing inside and out. And so that's what we did. And I got to know this guy. I got to know this guy better than I ever dreamed of getting to know a contractor that would come out. And we would just talk. And we would talk about the building. And then we talk about life. Fast forward several years and he goes, hey, like I'm getting married at the end of the summer. You do that sort of thing? Like, like And I'm like, well, let's have a conversation about Jesus uh, for just a minute. And he goes, yeah, yeah. I, church is in the background. I did some of that. It doesn't, I don't know if it's like for me, I got no objections to the whole thing. Like, yeah, I kind of, I believe, but it just hasn't like taken over. So like, oh, awesome. Okay, so let's just talk more about that. So we talk more about that. I have a couple meetings, a little more electrical work getting done. I invite him to church. He accepts the invitation with his fiance and they show up. They show up and they leave and they're like, whoa i had no idea that church could be fun and interesting i'm like thank you for the extraordinarily low bar to head <laughs> he goes it's fantastic and so we do our premarital thing right and we get ready now they live way outside way north of town so it was a huge deal for them even to come to church church once but we do the thing and then summer goes by and you know we don't talk all that much until like wedding comes around you know, we start to catch up again, and, and it's at that moment in the wedding, right, where everybody is seated down, and the moms are up, and they're, like, lighting a candle or doing something up there, and, like, we're all lined up, and the way I do it is I got me and the first people that go out is me and the groom, and we're just standing there just for a moment, like, waiting for the signal, right, and he le- looks over at me, and he goes, hey, you know, uh, we found a church, and I'm like, God, oh, no kidding, he goes, yeah, we found a church, We started attending at the beginning of the summer. I don't think we missed a weekend all summer long. It has changed our lives and I think it's going to change our marriage for the better. And I'm not kidding, the music starts and we both start walking down. And I'm like, what is happening right now? (laughs) I got to call an electrician. I can tie my misery to the fact that I need to call a contractor or I can change my focus. I've got a guy now in my phone, and you can test me on it later if you want to. I'm not kidding. He is in my phone as Rob Plummer, and he has not accepted my invitation yet, but he will. (laughs) The perspective change. You want to be miserable, tie your your happiness to the circumstances. But that's not all. Paul continues in the very next line. He says in verse 15, that it's true that some people preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. Hang on to those. But others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, he goes, I rejoice. The thing that Paul realized around him is that while he was in prison, and he was in prison, 30-year-ish ministry, he was in prison for about a fifth or a sixth of that time, which, is, which has to be extraordinarily deflating to him as motivation. But while he was in prison, there were some other people that believed that, that while he was being taken down a couple notches, somehow it boosted them up. Although it didn't actually boost them up because it wasn't about him, them at all. It's just that their reference point wasn't Jesus, wasn't what, what, what God was doing in and through them. Their reference point was Paul. So if Paul's went up, then they would feel like they were lower. And if Paul went down, the envy and the jealousy, the rivalry that Paul mentioned made them feel like they went up. And this was happening, by the way, not outside of the church. He references it inside of the church. How ugly is that? Listen, you want to be miserable? You want to be miserable? Number two, compare yourself to other people. Compare your situation, your success, your relationships, your calling, compare that to somebody else. Use them as a reference point. You will find that somebody else is prettier, richer, smarter, and more successful than you are in whatever scale you use. If you want to be miserable, use somebody else as a reference point. You'll get there every single time. And it is ugly. And in this comparison trap, nobody nobody wins. It's a true story. My daughter is, um, she's in third grade. She's nine years old. And because on her soccer team, nobody wants to play goalie, so offending goalies. Um, she is in the net as goalie now because everybody has to take turns. And she doesn't like it. And however nervous she gets, I'm 10 times more nervous. <laughs> And there's a fast break on somebody else on the other team. And my heart starts beating out of my chest for her. And the person just winds up and just clocks the thing. And it goes, it, she doesn't even get a hand on it. It goes right to the, screaming to the back of the net. I couldn't have stopped that ball. No way. Right? And I just, oh. I feel so deflated, like, for her. Right? You know, and so eventually she gets called out. It's the uh, you know, cha- halftime. They change goalies. New girl comes in. New girl comes in, I'm watching the the little girl, third grader, nine years old at goalie. And the same thing happens, fast break, player comes out and the player winds up and just creams and again, screaming to the back of the net. And I'm telling you church, there is a part of me that actually delighted in the fact that another third grade nine-year-old girl failed on our team, because I was just happy that Lily didn't have to be the only one who let a goal by, even though there was nothing they could do. And goalie like, that's the problem with the defense right there. It shouldn't be the goalies. And I'm with you. And it is such an ugly thing. And nobody wins in a comparison like that, using someone else as a reference point. Stanford University did this research a little ways back that said um, that the hypothesis, the theory, was that we all know this. We all know that comparing up just leaves us miserable, right? This isn't new. You want to be miserable? Compare yourselves up. Everybody knows that. And so the theory was that, but what if we compared down So we all know that it makes us miserable to look at people who are smarter, happier, richer, whatever. Like that is a recipe for disaster. But what about looking down to people who have less relationship, less stuff, less success, less notoriety, less influence? What if we compare down? I'll bet the hypothesis is if we look up, it makes us miserable. If we look down, it makes us happier. What they found is that wasn't the case at all. In fact, both groups were miserable. The only group that came out as reasonably content with their place in life was the group that wasn't looking outside at all, was the group that had their own internal metric, their own internal scale, measuring stick of what they wanted to do and who they hoped to be. And if they were hitting that or not, that was the group that was happy. It had nothing to do with the comparison at all. That was only correlated with being miserable. And I think this is one of the reasons why you can hear like the echoes of Jesus. In the background saying, no, 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 pray for your enemies. And don't pray like you know, yeah, I'll pray pray for them to get hemorrhoids tomorrow and every day after that. No, pray for your enemies. Because in kind of a way, over time, they won't be your enemies for much longer. You want to be miserable, tied to circumstances. You want to be miserable, compare yourself to others. Use them as the reference point. And that's not all. You want to be miserable. Continuing on in verse 18. Paul says, yes, I will continue to rejoice. For I know that your prayers, I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Your prayers, my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but I have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If I'm going to be honest with you, I have like this picture of Paul that he's kind of like this curmudgingly grumpy guy all the time. I have this like picture of Paul because of some of the things maybe that he wrote or just his general disposition. I have this mental picture of Paul that he's the kind of guy that is best learned from on ink and paper and not face to face, right? Like he's a guy that I'd read his book, but I really don't want him in my small group. Like he's that kind of in your face guy. And I have to confess, I think that's wrong. I think that's missing, missing the mark on him. You can hear in his letter to the Philippian church that he loves them so deeply. I know that through your prayers, this will turn out for my deliverance. He starts off in Philippians chapter one, in all my prayers for all of you, I always rejoice. For your partnership in the gospel. In fact, that's why we call commitment to this organization, Encounter Church, why we call it partnership. It came right from Paul, because he was on the journey with them. If you want to be miserable, last one, do life alone. But the happiness underneath the happiness, that joy that cannot be taken away is found in life together. One more bit of research is that people have studied longevity and what it takes to live a long life. And again, the working hypothesis going into the study is that we know doing life together is just physically good for our bodies and our well-being. So the hypothesis going in is that those people who have someone to care for them, someone to look after them, someone to take them to doctor's appointments, somebody to to go to the grocery store on their behalf, the working hypothesis is that if you have somebody like that in your life, that is the key. That's one of the secrets to longevity. They found that, that that was close. Although the real secret to longevity isn't having somebody care for you, But you having somebody to care for, that you're the one going to the grocery store, that you're the one driving someone to the doctor's appointment, that you're the one looking after the person in your life, that is the secret to longevity they found. And again, I hear these words of Jesus echoing in the background and say, Yes, for the Son of Man, Jesus is referencing himself, the Son of Man came. Not to be served, but to serve. You were made for this. You want to be miserable? Do life alone. The happiness under the happiness comes from doing life together. I want to come back to Acts chapter 16. That's the story in the Bible that we found out about the first time that Paul was in the city of Philippi when he got arrested and put down in the deep, dark dungeon underground in the military outpost prison when he was locked away in stocks. And for all he knew, he'd be forgotten about. He was locked away down there in the basement. He didn't know what would happen to him, but he didn't let the circumstances around him take away his joy. He was found singing at midnight. The other prisoners could hear him singing these songs about Jesus and the hope that he had in Jesus, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the stocks around his feet. At midnight, in the deep, dark prison, he could have have gotten woe is me about the fact that there are rivals that there are other missionaries who didn't have to deal with being shipwrecked, who didn't have to deal with being driven out of town, other missionaries like him who didn't have to deal with constantly being locked in stocks and put away in prisons for years on end. He could have looked around and compared himself to others as a reference point and say, why me and not them? But he didn't. He sang away at midnight. And he didn't sing away alone because he never went out with just himself. He was there with his buddy and ministry partner, Silas, so that the two of them at midnight, in stocks, in the basement, are singing away together because he knew he was not going to go out alone. He was doing life together with his ministry partner. And then an earthquake An earthquake, violent earthquake, it says, took place. And the doors flung open, and miraculously, the stocks flew off. He he could go. And he walks up the stairs to get out, and he sees over on the left, and he sees freedom. This is obviously God taking him through and out to freedom again, to preach the gospel. But he pauses, because on his left was freedom, but on his right was that Philippian jailer, the jailer who was ex-military, because everybody was. The jailer who knew what happens to guards that didn't do their duty. And so he draws his sword and he's just ready to do it himself and get it over with. And Paul sees freedom on the left and he sees the jailer on the right and says, no, 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 I'm not going to choose freedom because now the jailer is in prison. And so he goes over to the jailer, and talks to him, the guy that's been listening to his annoying singing all night. And I say that it's annoying because no singing is good at midnight. (laughs) And the guy asks the most important question. People have the most important question in the history of humanity. The jailer asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? What can I do? so that my feet can be in stocks, I can locked away and forgotten about. But my joy, my happiness underneath the happiness can never be taken away. And Paul answers. And he gives the same answer to the jailer, I think, as he would to you sitting here today. He says simply this, believe. Believe in Jesus Christ. And this joy... That will never be eclipsed can be yours. In just a moment, we're going to sing a last song and we have a team set up at the prayer table in the back. If you want that joy, if you want to know that you're not alone, if the circumstances are pressing in, if you're using others as a reference point, go to the table in the back and just ask for the joy of Christ to be yours. I want you to stand up. Let's pray together. Our gracious God in heaven, Lord, we, uh, some of us, we have some confession to do to you. God, we've been using others as this reference point. We've been using the circumstances around us as our bar to decide whether or not it's a good day or not. God, we've been trying to do it alone for far too long. We weren't meant for this. We weren't built for this. But by your Holy Spirit, you're with us now and you're in this place. We are not forsaken, and we are not forgotten. You're waiting for an invitation. So God, we offer that up to you, and we say, Lord, come in. Make your joy mine. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.